from Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. I hope you have uh, your copy of scripture and you can join me in Psalm 63. If this is your first time with us, we are making our way through a summer series in the Psalms, and we're spending some time looking at uh, various and different Psalms. And if, uh, if you have the old print version of the Bible, it's almost right smack dab in the middle. But my prayer is that when we are looking at these Psalms, I hope that this is the, not the last time you will look at the Psalm that we share together. I hope these, our time together is a, uh, a little taste of what uh, will expand into your own exploration of God's Word when you get home. Uh, I'm hoping that this is a, a means by which you can dig in a little deeper when you're on your own. But Psalm 63 is an interesting psalm. And if I had to summarize it, I think I would say it is a survival guide of how to endure in spiritual wilderness. It's a, a way for us to understand the means by which God has intended believers to be sustained through the wilderness. Um, because that's where we find David is writing this particular psalm. And so he says he is in uh, the wilderness, and David is the author, uh, just to remind you, third king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, the king by which all other subsequent kings were, were measured and compared. He is, is called a man after God's own heart. He was not a perfect king, not in the least. And yet, he went a long way in loving God and demonstrating a passion to see God's name ex, uh, glorified and, and proclaimed throughout all of the earth. And so we have been given examples of how to help us, and David is one of them, how to endure through difficulty. It wasn't as if David simply had some hard times when he was younger and then later in life everything was smooth sailing. That's not the case with David's life. He had continual struggles throughout his life. And some of us have had hard earlier years in your life. I see some heads nodding. You've had difficult times and you're thinking, I want to graduate out of this mess. I want to be done with suffering. I want to be finished with whatever hard sort of shaping that the Lord is doing me. And I, I would tell you that sanctification will last until the day you die. And sometimes suffering is a means by which 
God shapes us and molds us into his character. And we have good examples of how to be sustained through seasons of suffering, and David is one of them, and how to do so with keeping your faith and not losing it. David is going to offer us some advice. If we look at, at his text, we're going to see some ways in which we can move through seasons of suffering and not lose our faith. And so the context here is David is in the wilderness. It's dry. It is desolate. And he is, is lonely. And the passage breaks up into about three chunks. There's verses 1 to 4, um, 5 to 8, and 9 to 11. So we're going to take it in three different uh, ways that we uh, can, can look at an understanding of what's happening here. But I want you to see something. This psalm is incredibly intimate. There's no congregation There's no corporate setting here. David is alone. He is speaking to God and God alone. It's just him and God on his own. And so we get the feel he's in the wilderness of Judah. Now, when when you hear this phrase, when you get a clue of the circumstances for which the psalm was written, you naturally want to inquire, well, what was happening? What was going on? And we get a couple of clues in this psalm. Verse 11 says there were lying men talking about David. And verse 9 tells us that there was somebody seeking to destroy his life. Somebody is trying to kill David. That's why he's in the wilderness. So when might that have happened? If you know the story of David's life, there are two occasions that this could possibly fall under. And the first is before he was anointed king, when he was fleeing from Saul, who was king, was jealous of David, and Saul was trying to kill David, and he was on the run for 13 or so years, hiding out in caves in the wilderness. The second time he was on the run was when he was king and his own son, Absalom, the oldest, tried to usurp to the throne and steal the kingdom from his father. I think that is the time we're talking about here because in verse 11, you will see the king will rejoice in God. So here's David who's saying about himself, he's the king. That's not the case when he was running from Saul because Saul was the king. So clearly, I'm convinced this is a time when David had fled from Absalom, his son. He fled Jerusalem. He got out and went out into the wilderness in order to uh, escape being attacked by his son, his oldest son. And imagine, you guys, you have to get into this. When When you read the Bible, get into the text. Imagine you have your son trying to kill you. So we're, we're going to try to join David in the wilderness here because this is what's going on. There's a couple of other pointers that convince me that this is during the time of Absalom. And it's because of the language that David uses of the wilderness, this dry, weary, thirsty land. That same kind of language is used in telling the story of David's flight from Absalom in 2 Samuel, which is, we'll find it in, verse, in chapters 15 to 19. But here's some of the words when David's friends discovered that he had fled from Jerusalem and had gone out into the wilderness, um, it happened quickly. He got out of Jerusalem exceedingly fast, didn't have time to pack a lunch. Some of his friends discover that he is in the wilderness, and we are told in 2 Samuel 16 too, they brought wine to drink for those who would faint in the wilderness. David says almost the same thing in verse 1. I'm fainting. I'm fainting for the Lord in a dry and thirsty land. And in 2 Samuel 17, Some others bring food to the people who were hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So I'm convinced that's what's happened. Now, if you're wondering why would Absalom try to kill his father, 
It's a long story, but the short of it is he felt mistreated or unfairly treated by his father, David. And so he spent about four years telling all of those, anybody who was anybody in Jerusalem, exactly what they wanted to hear. Things like he would stand on a street corner and say, you know, if I were king, you're a runner, right? I'd buy everybody a new pair of shoes. That's what I'd do if I was king. Or, oh, you, you like soft seats sitting in, I, I'd buy new chairs, friend. I mean, King David won't do that. Or you like air conditioners and it's kind of hot in here. I'd, I'd get a new air conditioner. If I was king, that's what I would do. That's what, he spent four years and he wooed everyone over to him. They believed his nonsense. And yet that's exactly what happened. And so he got very, uh, a very large head and said, you know what? I think I should be king. And he, 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 he gathered up some rabble, some worthless men around him who then hired some other soldiers and he amassed an army of 20,000 men to, uh, in a neighboring city of Hebron and he, um, you know, he voted himself in. They all agreed from all, the, all of the promises that he was making and he made a run on David. When David discovered what was happening, he was absolutely devastated absolutely devastated. He knew 20,000 are about to come and march on Jerusalem. And to avoid a bloody battle in Jerusalem, he thought it best, I'll just get out. I don't want my city to suffer for this, so I will leave. And we are told in 2 Samuel 15, he went out weeping. Can you imagine a king weeping? He went out barefooted and with his head covered. He threw a towel over his head. He didn't even put his shoes on. He just grabbed whatever he could go and out they went. And he was weeping the whole time that he went. And so as he goes out, he flees out into the wilderness. The question is, what do Christians do when your world suddenly is turned upside down? When your life is full and everything is fine and you have plenty of friends It's easy to follow the Lord. It's easy to yearn to be with him and to praise him. But what happens when you have no one? Your own son is trying to murder you. You've had to leave the house. You've been kicked out of the city. And you are in a foreign land that doesn't have any restaurants or anything around. There's nothing. And you're completely devastated. This is David. He's lost everything. He had to flee for his life. So what do you do? What do Christians do? What do believers do when you suddenly find yourself in the wilderness? And I think this psalm tells us three things. First four verses, we talk to God. The second four or five verses, you talk to yourself. And the last three, you talk to others. So we'll take them in those chunks. First one, verses one to four, you talk to God. When you find yourself alone in the wilderness, you talk to God because that's exactly what David does. He goes directly to God and tells him all of his troubles. He's alone in the wilderness and here's what he says. He pours out his soul. So let me just read verses one to four again. And I would encourage you, Um, If you think you're going to get all of the juice and marrow out of a psalm by reading it once, it won't work. You need to read the psalms again and again and again. I I read this every day this week. That's usually what I do when I preach. Whatever passage it is, I'm, I'm reading it every day and pleading to the Lord, show me what's here. 
right? I told Wes as he's leading worship, I said, you need to read this psalm every day this week. Once you read this, so if you think, I, I don't get this, well, go at it again. It's like chewing beef jerky. You ever go for a hike? I love going for hikes and chewing on beef jerky because it lasts forever and it seems to always be just a little bit more juice. That's probably a terrible analogy, but <laughs> soak in God's word. Get all of the goodness out of his word that you possibly can. Don't give up after one read and say, ah, nothing there for me. Well, keep going. There's lots there. Christians have been nourished by the Psalms for generations. So keep going. Don't give up. Verse 1. So here's David. He's lost everything. He's on the run. He's left his house. He's left his city. He's in the wilderness. Uh, and he says this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. So what does David do? He, he goes straight and starts talking to God. When he is in the wilderness, he commits himself to talking to his God. He addresses him personally in eight out of the 11 verses in this psalm. He uses the second person pronoun you 17 times talking to God in this psalm. He's directly speaking to God and he says, oh God, you are my God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. It is, it is the third word in the Hebrew Bible. First verse in, of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In beginning, God, Elohim. David is talking about the God who created him and who created this world and has all power, all authority, all sovereignty. And he says, you are my God. God, you are my God. He does not say, and I miss the palace. Or, where's the McDonald's? Uh, he, he's, he, it's not king being his God. He, he's, his God is not popularity. He doesn't want to be the most popular guy in town or the strongest king in the country. He, picture him sitting on a little mat in the sandbox saying, you are my God. You are the one I need. Elohim, you are my God. Nothing else. I need no one else. I need only you. Earnestly I will seek you, is what he says earnestly I will seek you. I grew up memorizing the King James Version and it says, early I will seek to you. And I always compare. When you're reading the Bible and you have different translations, you ought to dig in and try to figure out why. The root of this word uh, is, is the dawn. When the sun comes up, and the primary notion is not the time, but the, the desire or the priority of the seeking. The notion is, what comes on your mind when you first wake up? When you regain consciousness in the morning and you're suddenly aware that you're awake, what's on your mind? David is saying, you, God, I will earnestly and early, you can just put them together, I will seek you. You alone are what I need in the wilderness. I don't need a camel. I don't need a, a canteen. His mind is focused on the Lord. And I find this exceedingly convicting. Can you say that? As soon as I wake up, you're on my mind. Now, if you're in the wilderness and your son's trying to kill you, may the Lord spare me from such sons. 
And yet, what are you going to think about? It gets really personal. David says, you earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land. It's you that I want. I wondered if he was weeping when he was writing this. I wish I could see. Did he have a journal? How did he do this? I have no idea. But were there teardrops staining the ink? How many of you have cried out to the Lord as you write your soul and plead with him? Will you help me? That's what he's saying. He is crying out, you, Lord, I need you. He doesn't say, I need freedom from oppression. He doesn't say, I need, can you take care of Absalom? He doesn't say any of that. He just, I want you. Oh, that that's the focus of our soul in this world. How many of us would be spared the pain of consequences to our sin if our eyes were fixed on the Lord Jesus? It's our wandering that causes grief in our life. How many of us, if our eyes were fixed on him, would spare so many around us and ourselves from the painful consequences of sin. So he's yearning for God. So follow his thinking with me. Next verse, two, what does he say? All right, I'm yearning, I'm learning, I, I, I want to be with him, I'm not, right? He's not, he doesn't feel close to the Lord. He feels separated, he's far from the Lord. I need your presence. That's why he's calling out. And yet, next verse, what does he do? He says, so I've looked on you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So David's alone in the wilderness, crying out for nearness to God. And what comes into his mind is, I, I wish I could be in the sanctuary. I, I, he, he's saying, I wish I could be with God's people as we gather for corporate worship. That's what he's talking about. I wish I could see your power and your glory. He's yearning for this. He's yearning to be with God's people. I love being with you. I, I pray every one of God's children yearns to be together with other believers in small groups and large groups, in song and in prayers and in, in worshiping over word. We, we sometimes think worship simply means music. No way. What, what am I doing right now? We are worshiping over God's word. We're proclaiming his goodness by seeing what we see in his word. And so he says, I, I wish I could go back to the sanctuary. And behold, well, that was when I felt near to God. That's when I sensed his presence. His, I beheld his power and his glory. And yet he knows God is not limited to the temple or to the sanctuary, is he? Because David is far out in the wilderness and he's still praying to God. He knows God can hear his prayers. Sometimes some of us think, if, you know, the, church, the doors of the building are closed, I, I can't pray. Or, you know, I have to go to a holy spot in order to pray. No, you don't. You can pray to the Lord God through the name of Jesus anywhere, anytime in your life. And the Bible tells us we ought to be doing it all day long. In our spirit, in our heart, praying at all times. And so this is what David does. He goes back in his mind. Oh, that I could see your power and your glory. Oh, that I could be in the sanctuary, worshiping with God's people. And then the next thought, as he's thinking, I wish I could be near the Lord. I, I want to see his power and his glory like before. And what's next? And then he says in verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. 
because, so he goes from power and glory in the corporate gathering, worshiping with the Lord, and he says, but something better than even the power and the glory of God. It is the love of God. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. Because of that, I'll praise you. And so this word, uh, hesed, which is translated here, steadfast love, is an incredible word. It is sometimes translated as loving kindness or faithful love, steadfa steadfast love or unfailing love. It's, it's rich. With, it's one word in the Hebrew, but no single English word can convey all of the meaning. And so we always have to use compound words to try to pump up our ability in English to understand the meaning. But the notion is rooted in God's covenant. So it's attached to the promises of God. And it includes both provision and protection as well as affection. God is, a, he, it's love. You see the word there, right? Loving kindness. It's, his, it's God's promised loving nature to take care of his people and provide for them. But also within it is affection. And I want you to think about a moment. When you think about God's love, do you think that he is affectionately disposed towards you? Or he's just taking care of your needs, Right? I mean, some dispassionate provider can take care of needs and care nothing for you, right? I, I, can, I can give my, food, kid, my kids food all day long, but I, it's just, I'd rather not be in the same room with them. Is that the kind of love you think of? That's not true, by the way. <laughs> do you think of God's love like that? If you do, that's not the biblical kind of love. If you think God just, uh, he's, you know, he's got a pretty hefty job taking care of the universe and all that. He's just, he can take care of me. I'll pray to him like that, but I really don't think he enjoys me. This, this covenant promise would say the opposite. When you hear the word covenant in the Bible, you should think marriage. That's what it means. It is vows promised to stay together. It is God's promise. I'm with you. I will be with you when, when you are dying. I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm with you at all times. I love this word. So here, this is what David is saying. It's, I, I've seen his power and glory. But the most important thing is the covenant love of the Lord. Because God keeps his promises. And you know what? We know more about God's love than David did. So if David is moved by God's covenant love, we ought to be pushed out of our chairs. And here's a couple of verses. But why? Well, because we know Jesus, right? We know who Jesus is. We know he has come in the flesh. God didn't just leave us to struggle along. He entered into our creepy, cruddy world and became flesh. And here are some of the verses that we, we have. First John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means payment, satisfying the wrath of God. He did that for us. Somebody else paid your debt. That's what Jesus did. He took care of your garbage. He died for it. So you could be free from the punishment. That's love is what John is saying here. Be amazed that somebody else would take your mess and get rid of it. 
And then he goes on, he says, all, this is John 3.16. Some of you may know this, right? It used to be on every football game, every Sunday afternoon. John 3.16. It's, it's now, what is it? Judge not, lest you be judged. Is that the verse? We, we don't even see any verses at football games anymore, right? Here it is. I'm getting off the point. For God so loved the world. And the so here means in this way. It does not mean to degree. It means in this way. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but in order that the world through him might be saved. That's love. God's love did that. God the Father sent God the Son in order to die for the sins of everyone who would say to Jesus, would you take me? I am a mess. Would you take me though? And the Bible says, if you come to him, he will accept you. Whatever your messy life is, whatever garbage you've been into, he will take you, is what the Bible says. And here's the best one, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. While you were in his enemy, that's when he died for you. He did not wait until you said, you know, Jesus, can we go have a cup of coffee? You were plotting his death when he died for you. We were his enemies and he still said, I will lay down my life. That blows my mind. And so we, if David can say, your steadfast love is better than life, we ought to know even more deeply how sweet and kind and affectionate and providing is the love of God because he has given us his only begotten son in order to pay for our sins. And so David concludes, I will bless you as long as I live in verse 4. Because of this, because of this love that you have shown me, this undeserved favor, I will bless you as long as I live. I don't know how long that's be. My boy's got 20,000 men who are coming after me. It might be a very short time, but I will bless you as long as I live. So when you're in the wilderness, talk to God and praise his name. Even, do you think he feels like it? You think David feels like praising? You think he feels like writing this? It's not warm, fuzzy feelings, I don't think. But I think he knows what is good for his own soul is to praise the Lord. And he says, I will do that as long as I'm alive. I will bless the Lord. So talk to God. When you are alone in your, whatever wilderness you're in, talk to the Lord. He can hear your cries for help. He will, he will come. He, ha, he has come, and he will come again. I mean that in about 15 different ways. But yet here we see God saying, David saying, I, I talk to the Lord. Secondly, in verses 5 to 8, talk to yourself. Now, David is still addressing God, but in it there's some self-talk. And I wonder how many of you are willing to confess you talk to yourself. Anybody in the room? You talk to yourself? Only seven of you. So we all, you should. This, this psalm is going to encourage you to talk to yourself. Or better yet, we should say, to preach to yourself. To tell yourself what is true. Because here's what David does in verses 5 to 8. And, and notice how future-oriented this is. My soul will be satisfied as fat 
as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Remember, he's, he's in the wilderness writing this. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on, on, the, on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. This is I will, my soul will be satisfied. My lips will praise you. I will sing for joy. He's talking about in the future. I know I'm going to be delivered. God's not going to leave me here. So he's saying, soul, you will glorify Lord, the Lord. Lips, you will praise him. You will sing for joy. This will happen. David is kind of preaching to himself saying, I know God has been my help and he will be my helper again. And so I will rejoice. Soul, you will. And that's what you need to do when you're in the wilderness, when you're in the middle of chaos, sometimes your perspectives can get all confused, right? Pain blurs the vision. We can't see clearly in suffering. And so here is David saying what is true. He has been my helper in the past. He will be my helper in the future. Therefore, I will praise him. My lips will praise him. I will joyfully sing to this God whom I love. And I'm, I'm looking around the room and I see many of you. I, I know some of you have gone through intense suffering. Intense. You've lost loved ones. You've lost husbands. You've lost wives. And you're here. You're still worshiping. You are still clinging by faith to a God whom you have chosen to love. And every one of you, in the suffering that you are going through, you're a little beacon of, of hope in your world. Right? Part of the reason I think Christians suffer is because people need to see somebody who can suffer with hope and faith. Because this doesn't happen in the world. And so your circle of in, the people who are watching you are trying to discover, is there anything in your life worth holding on to? Because there's not much in the world worth holding on to. And so we suffer in order to proclaim goodness and glory to the Lord. And you notice, David anticipates sleepless nights here. He says, Right? My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I meditate you upon my bed and, in, and uh, think on you in the middle of the night. David knows I'm not going to be sleeping well. It's not air conditioned in the wilderness. I couldn't sleep at all in the wilderness. He's, he's not, he's, he's not going to be going to sleep. He's not at peace. He's not at ease. His soul is disrupted. And so he knows in the night, in the darkest dark of night, what are you going to do? He's planning for what to tell his soul when he is in the middle of despair. Are you making such plans? We've gone through sleepless nights, all of us, right? And so here David says, I will meditate on the Lord. And when I'm wide awake in the middle watches of the night, my mind will go to my God. I will focus on my Lord. I will meditate on him. And you remember what meditate means? That little quiet muttering under your breath again and again what's true. And so he says, I will tell myself the truth in the middle of the night. I will speak truth. And, and, and he also says, I will sing. Look at verse 7. Right? I'm in the middle of the night, in the watches of the night, when he's awake and on his bed, he's thinking about God. He says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. You know what instantly came to my mind when I thought about that? 
How many of you remember mom singing to you when you were freaked out in a nightmare? Does anybody remember mom singing to you? Do you still sing the song? Some of you are like, no, mom never sang to me. I remember my mom singing and, and mothers singing, maybe fathers, maybe dads sing too. I just, my mom came to my mind, but singing in the night brings peace, doesn't it? It, it, it does. It calms us, right? Puts us in a, a solid place of, if I keep talking like this, you'll go to sleep too, right? It just calms us down. And yet David says, I will sing in the darkness of the night. I will sing. You know, these psalms are meant to be sung, right? If, if you have your Bible, um, look at verse, uh, chapter 62. What does it say? The, to the choir master. It's intended to be sung. And verse chapter 61, to the choir master. That's intended to be sung. Chapter 60, to the choir master. All of these are intended to be sung. So as we have been talking about memorizing these psalms, well, sing them. When you're in the, the darkness of night, put them to a little tune. You make it up. Just sing truth. Because here is God's goodness coming to David. Now, he's a musician. Maybe this speaks to him in a particular kind of way. So maybe musicians can find it easier to sing in the middle of the night when they're freaked out and scared. But I think all of us would do well to put God's word to a song. And in fact, this reminded me of Psalm 42, 8, which says, By day, the Lord commands his loving kindness to us, right? His watch care, his shepherding. But in the night, his song is with me. And as a little kid, I remembered that verse. And in my mind, when I was afraid at night and would wake up in the watches of the night, I would remember this verse. I'm like, Lord, I'm scared. But I think Psalm 42, 8 says you might be singing. So can you fix my ears so that I can tune in to what you might be saying? David finds peace in singing. And I, I just wonder, I want to invite you to do an experiment. When you wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes temptations happen in the middle of the night. Sometimes we get scared in the middle of the night. Sing. Sing God's word. Whatever, whatever Bible verse you can memorize. Maybe it's, in the beginning, he created all things. I don't know. God's truth can bring goodness and satisfaction to your soul. So I challenge you, put whatever scripture you're memorizing into a little song and sing it to yourself. Because that's what David does here. And it is a means of clinging to the Lord. Look at verse 8. Right, My soul, after saying this, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Right? This is an expression of, of clinging and crying out to the Lord. So singing for David was a means of appropriating the truth of who God is into the depths of his soul. And so my cling to you, Lord, that your right hand uphold me. And this, we were created to cling to, to God. We were created to find our comfort and peace in him. And this world has wired us to find it in every other place but him. Because we, if love is good and we love to be loved and we want to be loved, we will seek love wherever we can find it. But how many of us will go with all of our heart to find the love of God that David says is better than life? 
We'll go to people. So we find love in physical persons. That's good, but it's not fully complete. It's a cracked reflection of the way that God has created us to yearn for him. And the classic example of this is the woman at the well. When Jesus went through Samaria and he bumped into this woman at the well and he was talking with her and, and she's, she's meeting her maker. She's meeting the person who created her soul and she doesn't realize it. And he says to her, why don't you go get your husband? And she's, ah, I don't, I'm not married at the moment. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. I think this woman was clinging for love. She's, she's trying to find her home. She's trying to find a place of peace and she couldn't find it in any man. That's because it's not found in man or woman. That your soul was created to find rest in God. And as Augustine says, you won't find your rest until you rest in him. If your soul this morning is at rest, you will not be at peace until you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus fully and completely because we were created to know him. And if we don't, it will be a tragic loss. And so talk to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. When you're in the wilderness, talk to yourself. Tell your soul don't go here to find joy. Go to the Lord. Don't seek satisfaction in people. Seek first God, and he will satisfy every need. Everything you have will be will taken care of in him. So tell yourself the truth. And then thirdly, talk to others. When you're in the wilderness, talk to others. Verses 9 to 11. Uh, here's the, the warning. David concludes with a warning. Let me just read these final verses. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion of jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, those who swear by him, that's a confusing statement. We think, what do you mean, cuss words? What are you talking about, David? He means those who look to God as their highest authority. Right? When you, when you, if you swear an oath, you're swearing an allegiance to some higher authority. And so here, David is saying, if God is your Lord, you will exult. If he is the highest authority and you happily surrender to him, he, you will be a person who exults in him or rejoices in him. The word exult is halal. We get our word hallelujah. It means you praise the Lord. So let's go back a second. What is David doing? He is saying those who are seeking my life, his son and 20,000 men, those who seek me, to kill me, will uh, there'll be a portion for jackals. They will be given over to the power of the sword. Now, what does he mean? David is the rightfully anointed king. He alone is the king of Israel. There is no other authorized anointed king. He is God's chosen king. So he is saying, if you oppose God's will and you persist in that opposition, and you'll die in it. He's saying, don't reject the provision of the Lord. And we today, on this side of 
the page, so to speak, we know Jesus of Nazareth is a descendant of David. David is held out as the, the, the king and the provider who brought the entire nation together, brought peace to the land, brought justice to the land, and Jesus is his descendant. Jesus is God's anointed Messiah, and we know this how? Because of the works that he did, which nobody else did, like healing those who, he raised the dead, people born blind, received their sight. God affirmed his choice of Jesus in the miracles that he performed, the death that he died, resurrecting him from the dead, which nobody else has ever done on their own, and then also exalting him into heaven and seating him at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the Messiah. And so to bring this to us today, what David is saying, if you reject the one whom God has anointed to lead and protect and deliver his people, you will be given over to death. You will die. This is the message that needs to be spoken to everyone around us. This is the message that the world needs to hear. If you reject Jesus, you will die and go to hell, is what David is saying, in effect. If you reject God's anointed and you refuse what you know to be the Lord working, you will suffer eternal consequences. And so he's saying, don't do that. The warning that we need to talk to others is, avoid that. Surrender. Make him your highest authority. Surrender to him today, this moment, even as I'm speaking. And, and because this happened in Absalom's life, as David is in the wilderness and he says, those who reject the king will be given over to the power of sword, the battle did unfold just a few days from when this psalm was written. 20,000 came against David. David's men who were loyal to him went out and opposed them and God blessed them in, in the battle. They won that victory, mostly because God rained down hailstones from heaven, not because they were great swordsmen. In fact, the Bible tells us more people died from the hailstones that God threw down than from the battle on the field. So don't reject God's king. And there is one king, and he is King Jesus. That's the warning for all of us here today. So if you're in the wilderness, what are we to do? You A, talk to God. You go to him and talk directly to him. And can you say, oh God, you are my God. You're the one thing that I want more. It's not money. It's not wealth. It's not power. It's not sex or computers or college or whatever. Is God your God? That's what David says. You are. I need you more than anything else. And he talked to himself. He told himself the truth. Stop trying to seek satisfaction in any other thing, but cling to the Lord Jesus cling to him because Jesus is God's provision for our salvation. And then lastly, say this to others. Speak the truth to others. And one final thread, what's the remedy for getting out of the wilderness? The thread that weaves through this whole psalm is praise. For example, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. 
Verse 5, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. In the sh- verse 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. The, and in verse 11, the king will rejoice in you, God, and all who treasure you, another way of saying those who swear allegiance to you, all those who treasure you will praise you. That's the key to getting a shift in your soul in the middle of suffering is like David choosing to praise him even when you don't feel like it. Because something happens within us where where the, the circumstances of our wilderness begin to diminish as the immensity of God and all of his goodness is held up before us. And so we're gonna sing in just a moment. And I'm gonna invite you, do that. Praise him even if you don't feel like it. Sing these praises to God and glorify him and see if his goodness and his kindness and his steadfast love will not overwhelm your soul such that you can worship him. That's my pleading. So would you pray with me? Father, we, some of us, find ourselves in significant places of barrenness and loneliness. We feel like we're in a wilderness. And Lord, David gives us an example of coming to you with what's going on in our soul. And Lord, you you know what's in our hearts. It's not like we're giving you information you don't already have, but something happens when we confess to you what is happening within us. And Lord, I suspect there are some in this room who have not fully surrendered their lives to you, have not committed themselves to you, and maybe this is the time. Lord, you give us sweet promises through Jesus and saying that if we will come to you, you will never cast us out. And Jesus, I pray that you would grant all of us in this room to, to come to you right now and say, oh, I, I need you. I need you. I thirst for you. I'm hungry for you. This craving within my soul that's brought me here this morning is, Lord Jesus, it's for me. It's you calling me. And Lord, some of us are playing spiritual games. We know the truth. We just want to toy with sin. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would free us from infatuation to sinful things which never satisfy. Lord Jesus, help us to cling to you. Our souls cry out to you, both in confession of sin right now. I would encourage you quietly, if if there are sins that you need to confess, just whisper them up to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and it will be granted. And Father, for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, we have suddenly, subtly sometimes, found our way to delight in other things far more than you. And Lord, when we lie down on our beds and talk to you, would you give us the truth? Help us to to speak to ourselves the truth of satisfaction is only found in you. You created us. The only good that we have is from you. 
So keep us from wandering. Lord, let us return to you, all of us, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And Father, we know that you can do all things and that with you, nothing is impossible. So Lord Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.